And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on the local church, and we'll be focusing on the Lord's Supper, which is one of the ordinances of the church. An ordinance simply is something that the church practices because Jesus told us to do it. There are two ordinances found in the Bible, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We learned a little bit about baptism last week. We had a baptism. Nate was baptized. And these ordinances are Christian essentials. They are biblical commands. Jesus commanded us to do these things. But unfortunately, they're often downplayed in the church, probably due to a misunderstanding of what they are and how they function. And so we will see in our text this morning that the Apostle Paul had to remind the Corinthian church of the basics. That's what we're trying to do in this series, The Local Church, to remind ourselves of the basics so that we're obedient to Jesus, so that we stay on mission, and that he gets all the glory. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to be looking <clears throat> at verses 23 through 26. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us as we prepare to come to your table. And as we come to your word, we pray that our hearts would be drawn again to Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, well, we have to admit that the Lord's Supper is kind of strange, especially for someone who is new to the church, but even for some of us who have been regular attenders of the church for a long time, questions about the Lord's Supper kind of pop up in our minds, and maybe we're just too afraid to, to ask the question. But it is kind of strange. We do it because we know that the Lord commanded it. We do it because Jesus told us to, but we're not certain why we're supposed to do this. What are we supposed to be thinking about? And sometimes during or after the Lord's Supper, we don't really feel much. And why is this called a supper or a meal when we're eating a little wafer that tastes kind of like plastic sometimes? And then enough juice to actually get, get the cracker down so that we don't choke, right? Why do we do this? What is the Lord's Supper? For this sermon, we're going to go back to the basics. We're going to focus on how the Lord's Supper functions in the life of the Christian, but also in the life of the church. 
And my main point, what I hope that you get from the sermon this morning is this. It's a longer one. But our fellowship with God and one another is essential to sharing the meal that reminds us of Christ's death for our sins. I'm going to say it again. Our fellowship with God, but also with one another, is essential for sharing the meal that reminds us of Christ's death for our sins. And so our text today comes from a letter that was written to the Corinthian church. This was a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. And only three years after he had left to continue planting other churches, the church in Corinth started to stray from Paul's teaching. They had a lot of issues. Problems with division, sexual immorality, idol worship. And they also had social snobbery. Paul wrote this letter to address some of these issues in hopes that they would see their errors, that they would see their sin, that they would repent and change. And in the context of the verses we're looking at this morning, Paul is addressing the divisions that were occurring when the church was taking the Lord's Supper. The other church separated the Lord's Supper differently than we do today. Today we have a little piece of bread and a little cup, but the early church celebrated this ordinance with great feasts, similar to like our Baptist potlucks, but probably without Paula's egg rolls and fried rice. If you're new here and you have no clue what I'm talking about, find out when we're having a church potluck and show up. I promise you, you will not regret it. But the early church met, they would eat a giant meal and then at some point celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so as the church was meeting in homes and eating these meals, the more wealthy members of the church would eat first. And they would eat in private. And they would eat and drink so much that the poor would have nothing to celebrate the Lord's Supper with. They made the Lord's Supper a party for the rich. And so Paul tells the wealthier members that because they behave in this way and cause divisions within the church, they're actually not celebrating the Lord's Supper. He writes in verse 20 and 22, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The church had forgotten what the Lord's Supper was all about. They had neglected what Paul had initially taught them. And instead of being united in Christ and remembering what he had done for them, they were focused on themselves. And this was no light matter because they were acting in a way that dishonored Christ and what he commanded them to do. Paul writes in verse 30 that some had even gotten sick and died. This was serious. And so Paul goes back to the basics. 
He reminds the Corinthians of what he first taught them. He recalls the time when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Take a look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. The only answer is to return to the original supper, to Jesus' own words of institution. Paul couldn't say it any better than Jesus did. So on the night he was betrayed, when Jesus celebrated the last supper with his disciples, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, Judas. This little detail is probably here because Paul is reminding his readers that when they shared this meal in the upper room, when Jesus shared this meal with his disciples, there was even division then. The Corinthians were guilty of a betrayal a Jesus command and his sacrifice they had forgotten. And so on the night of betrayal, the disciples and Jesus were celebrating the Passover feast. The Passover feast we see all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. God's people, the people of Israel, were slaves in Egypt. And they cried out to God to deliver them. And God hears them. God sends 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh, who was the leader of the Egyptians at the time, to let his people go. And after sending nine plagues that prove that he is the one true God who reigns over this world, the 10th plague sent the strongest message. In this plague, God judged the Egyptians by killing every one of their firstborn children every one of their firstborn children. But he also saved the Israelite firstborns through the sacrifice of a lamb. God's people were instructed to kill a lamb and then spread its blood over the doorposts of their homes. And God promised that if he saw the blood, he would pass over that house. And inside the house the Israelites shared a meal. They ate the sacrificed lamb with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. And this came to be known as the Passover meal because God passed over his people. And the Passover meal would continue, continually be celebrated each year to remember God's act of salvation through judgment. But God didn't redeem his people from Egypt because they deserved it. We need to keep that in mind. Because of sin, all people everywhere deserve judgment. But in the Passover, God shows his mercy to a people who were undeserving. And it came at a cost. A substitute had to die in order for the people of Israel to live. In this, God was preparing his people for the sacrificial and substitutionary death of his own son. Jesus died on the cross in order that we might, through faith in him, be forgiven for our sins. And so Jesus is instituting this Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room. 
And we now understand the context of that was in the celebration of the Passover feast. It pointed to what he was going to do. In fact, the next day, the next day, Jesus died on the cross. And so the Passover celebrated God redeeming his people from captivity in Egypt through the blood of a sacrificed lamb. But the Lord's Supper celebrates and remembers our redemption from sin, death, and hell through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Passover was about temporary deliverance. And the Lord's Supper points to eternal deliverance. So on this night, take a look at verse 23. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes normal everyday items, the bread and a cup of wine, and uses them as symbols and signs. Outside of communion, we have things like this in our lives that act the same way. Think about a photo of someone that we love. While the photo is just a piece of paper or pixels on a cell phone, we invest meaning into it. The photo of this person brings comfort when we're away, when we miss them. The photo doesn't make that person physically present, but it somehow brings them closer to us. A piece of paper can symbolize much more than what it is. And that is what Jesus is doing with the bread and the cup. When the Passover meal was celebrated, the head of the household would explain the significance of the meal that was before them. And now Jesus is instituting new significance to the meal. As the host of this meal, Jesus gives thanks to God. And then he breaks a loaf of bread. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Then he takes a cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The bread represents his body. The bread reminds us of Christ's body given and broken on the cross for our sins. The wine, the cup, represents his blood. The cup reminds us of Christ's blood poured out on the cross for our sins. And during the Passover feast, they ate a sacrificed lamb, right? But Jesus doesn't talk about a, a lamb. It's because he is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He takes the items that were used in the Passover meal and gives them greater significance in the new meal that he institutes for his people. The Roman Catholic Church wrongly teaches 
that the bread and the cup become the literal body and blood of Jesus. This is error, major error. And they also teach that Jesus is offered as a sacrifice every time that communion happens. Martin Luther said, this is the greatest blasphemy and abomination ever known on earth. This undermines what we believe about Jesus, the fact that he was both human and divine. It also uh, undermines the sufficiency of the cross. Jesus cannot be physically present in the bread and the wine because his body is somewhere else. He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he cannot be sacrificed over and over again because his death on the cross was final and complete. He even cried out on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. So when Jesus said, this is my body for you, he doesn't mean it literally, but symbolically. And the disciples were used to Jesus using this type of symbolic language. Jesus often said things like, I am the door. I am the vine. And so it never entered their minds that he was literally giving them his literal body and blood to eat and drink. And he also says, my body is for you. The bearing of God's wrath and taking the punishment of sin was on the behalf of his people. It was for us. Jesus presents to his disciples a better and greater meal. He tells them to take the bread, to eat it. And he tells them to take the cup and to drink it. He says that the cup represents or symbolizes the new covenant in his blood. In the old covenant, animals were constantly sacrificed over and over again for the sins of of the people. But because of Christ's once for all sacrifice as our Passover lamb, he has brought in the new covenant covenant. And this covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. God promises to have a new covenant with his people where he promised to forgive their iniquity. And he promised to not remember their more. And so Jesus' death fulfills this prophecy and brings about the new covenant in which we live in. And referencing the new covenant, Jesus emphasizes this reconciliation that we have with God. Before Christ's sacrifice, we were unable to come before him because he is a holy God and we are a sinful people. But because of Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross, we are reconciled with God. But there's also another reconciliation that happens. The unity that is created with all fellow believers through Christ's shed blood on the cross.
Something to note here is that the Lord's Supper is meant to be taken only by those who believe in Jesus, but also only in the context of the local church. We remember Jesus and what he has done for us individually, but this is also a family meal where we remember Jesus together. Paul repeatedly, emph repeatedly emphasized that the Corinthians needed to gather before they celebrated the Lord's Supper. We see that all throughout chapter 11. In verse 17, he says, when you come together. In verse 18, when you come together as a church. In verse 20, when you come together. In verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is not a private moment between you and Jesus. The Lord's Supper is to be taken only when the church is gathered. We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper at the dinner table. We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper in our small groups. We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper at a wedding service, like I ignorantly did with my wife. The church should not celebrate the Lord's Supper virtually, online. This is a family meal that should only be observed when the church comes together, when they're physically present with one another. And because this is a family meal, let's celebrate it that way. When the Passover meal was celebrated, the family was together. They were enjoying the presence with one another. How, how do you guys have family meals? Do you sit far away from one another, closing your eyes, talking to one, uh, one person in your family? Or do you open your eyes and look at one another and share the meal that is before you? We should enjoy the meal together. We should enjoy the reminder of God's great mercy towards us. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't have to close our eyes. We're having a meal together. This is something special. This is, this is something in which we can actually look around the room as we partake and see God's grace in each and every one of our lives. Because we are reminded of the death of Jesus and the unity that we have in him. If you look back in, in this letter to chapter 10, verse 17, Paul writes, But there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Here Paul is making the argument for the unity in the church. He reminds the Corinthians that they are one body. And because of the disunity that was happening in the church, it was not compatible with what the Lord's Supper pointed to. It points to the unity that believers have in Jesus. It's possible to come to the table like hypocritical Corinthians. Unloving, unforgiving, selfishly, but instead, let's extend forgiveness to our spouse or child that we fought with on the car ride over here. Or to the brother that you disagreed with politically. Or the sister you talked about in an ungodly way. At this table, we are reminded that the church is one. 
Our divisions and differences begin to melt or should begin to melt as we eat together and we focus on the cross in the presence of our Lord and Savior. This is a family meal and we are to remember him together. We're not only told to eat and drink, we're told to do this in remembrance of him. Jesus is commanding us to remember his death continually. And in that, he is suggesting that we forget. We do. He knew the church in our sin and weakness would often forget him and his death. And so he graciously gives us this meal of remembrance in which we experientially are reminded of him and what he's done. Do this in remembrance of me. How could a Christian forget this amazing grace? How could we forget what we do? We often forget. We're weak and sinful people. And in the ordinary courses of our lives, we have to admit that we forget the ones that we love the most. We must admit that sometimes the struggles in this life lead us to doubt and anxiety instead of trusting in God's promises. Today you might feel forgiven and loved by God, but what about tomorrow? What about when you sin in a big way? Or when you get really sick? Or when someone betrays you? How will you feel then? Will you feel forgiven when you've sinned? Will you feel loved by God when the sickness is eating away at your body? Will you feel loved by God when you're fighting to survive or dealing with a betrayal? An author that I was reading said this about the Lord's Supper. He said, God in his kindness knows how weak and frail we are. He knows how battered by life we can be. And so he has given us his promise in bread and wine. These are promises in physical form. They're truth we can touch. The Lord has given us this meal to help us sustain our faith when it's weak. So we remember his sacrificial death, but we also remember the forgiveness we've received. The bread and the cup are reminders that we are forgiven never to be unforgiven. Think about that. We are forgiven never to be unforgiven. What an amazing gospel truth. And so Jesus tells his disciples to do these things in remembrance of him. And it's important for us to, to understand that this remembrance is not like remembering a long lost friend. That's not what we do in the Lord's Supper but we remember the one who died, but also defeated death and the grave. He is living and he's present with us as we celebrate what he came to do. 
We disagree with the Roman Catholics that believe that his body and blood are physically present, but somehow through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is spiritually present with us as we take this meal. He's spiritually present as we feast on him. Remember in Matthew 28, we learned last week that he promised that he would be with his people to the end of the age. He is with us. He's not physically present, but he's spiritually present. And we feast on him. I understand how strange that language can sound, that we feast on Jesus. But in John chapter 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's shocking language. To feed on his flesh, to drink blood. But Jesus is not calling us to cannibalism. He uses this language of eating and drinking to point to the life-giving union that we have in him. Just as we rely on physical bread for life, we rely on Jesus, the bread of life, for spiritual life. So in a spiritual way, in this meal, we are nourished. We are refreshed. Our faith is strengthened as we remember him and commune with him. And so as we do these things in remembrance of him, they also proclaim something. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a proclamation of good news. The word proclaim means heralding. And so somehow the Lord's Supper functions evangelistically. It preaches. The Puritan Thomas Watson described the Lord's Supper as a visible sermon. We not only hear as we observe the Lord's Supper, but we see the bread. We see the cup. We feel the bread as we hold it in our hands. We taste the bread and the juice. We experience it. There's something special in the fact that we can touch and taste this meal. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, we do not get a different or better Christ in the sacraments than we do in the word, but we may get the same Christ better with a firmer grasp of his grace through seeing, touching, feeling, and tasting as well as hearing. And so the Lord's Supper is more than a social meal. This is not a time where you get to satisfy your hunger. That's definitely not going to satisfy your hunger. But it's a time to bear witness to what Christ has done in redeeming us. And as unbelievers sit in this room and they watch us do something that they can't be a part of, there is a visible difference between the church, the body of and then the rest of the world. But it preaches. It's evangelistic. This is a time for unbelievers. 
to watch us. It's an opportunity for us to proclaim and call them to faith and repentance. We proclaim the gospel, the Lord's death in the supper, but we also proclaim his coming. Take a look at the last three words of verse 26. Here we have an eternal perspective. Until he comes. The Lord's supper is temporary. This is not something that we're going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. No one will be celebrating the Lord's Supper then. The one whose death is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper has risen. And Jesus will come again in power and glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the meal that we celebrate until he comes is just a taste of what is to come. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Our ultimate goal is to meet with the risen Christ in the new heavens and the new earth and share a meal with him when we will see Jesus face to face. Justice will come and sin will be no more. We're not just proclaiming that Jesus died, but that he is risen and that he's coming again. And so in light of all of this, we must examine ourselves. Paul writes in verses 27 and 28, Whoever therefore eats the the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Paul says we need to examine ourselves. And he uses that word unworthy, but he's not talking about our standing before God. He's saying in an unworthy manner, meaning how we approach the Lord's Supper. Of course we are unworthy. That's why Jesus died. But the manner in which we approach the table is important. We should not come to the Lord's Supper careless or irreverent. How can we come to the Lord's Supper and say, I remember that you died for me when we cherish our sin? How can you take these elements that say and represent that you remember when you cherish sin so much that it shows that you have forgotten? That's what Paul is saying. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. But some have misunderstood Paul's words and taking self-examination too far, thinking that because they've committed sin or have sinned and not known it, they are unworthy of coming to the table. And this is a major misunderstanding. Sin is a reality of all of our lives. The Lord's Supper is a time to slow down And have an opportunity to consider our hearts and think about how we have sinned throughout the week. It's an opportunity to be refreshed in the gospel and to resolve to walk in repentance. We come humbly, dependent, and repentant. We come to the bread and the wine when we are weary and doubting when we are fearful, 
when we are guilt-ridden, when we're frustrated, when we're anxious, this is a time for self-examination and to seek forgiveness that is only found in the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. And so Christians, remember, you were an enemy of God, but now you've been adopted into his family. This is a family meal. You stood condemned in your sin, but now you're counted righteous. You were a slave to sin, but now you've been set free to serve God. You were dead in your sin, but now you've been made alive. You were headed for hell, but now you're a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. So I hope this morning you have seen how much a blessing this ordinance is. There are often people who make the argument that if a church celebrates the supper too often, that it has the possibility of becoming stale and an empty ritual. But I believe that's a misunderstanding. Jesus instituted this practice for the church and to do it often. Where we commune with him and with each, and with each other, that we would eat the bread, that we would drink the cup, to celebrate our deliverance from sin, to remember Christ's death on the cross and anticipate his coming kingdom. I hope you would agree with me that these are things that we should do often. Why? Because we're prone to wander. Like the old song says, tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me this story often, for I forget so soon. Shortly, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. For those who believe in Christ, come joyfully and freely as you abandon your sin. Examine yourselves. Confess your sin. Repent. Come to the table. Remember Jesus' death and that he's coming again. This supper reminds believers to remember Christ's death, to love one another, and continually deal with their sin. Our fellowship with God and one another is essential for sharing the meal that reminds us of Christ's death.